Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. Hello and welcome back to I Really Wish You Hadn't. I'm Michael Bentley and I'm here with Cayman McMahon. Bonjour. And as always, our producer, Colin Moore. Bonjourno. Ooh. <laughs> and guys, <laughs> congratulations. We have been doing this podcast for a year now. Let's cut it. Excited. Let's <laughs> scrap <laughs> it. it. It's been a waste. <laughs> and with that, this is our final sign-off. Yeah. <laughs> We've we've wasted a lot of time over the past year uh, making this podcast for uh, you listeners to listen to. So I hope you at least appreciate it, because I yeah. know my parents don't. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> 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 no, I'm kidding. They're very supportive. Yes. Same. <laughs> uh, so anyway, in honor of our one year anniversary, we're doing another. I'm really glad you did. And since it's Black History Month, we decided to select two prominent figures in black history. We're yeah. both white dudes. Uh, I know my topic gets a little uncomfortable at times. But right, and you might be thinking, why am I going to sit here and listen to a podcast about Black History by two Actually, white dudes? Actually, we're three white dudes. I we're said three two. white dudes. We are yeah. three. I am yeah. also white. Yeah. Um, feel free to go check out some Black Run podcasts if you want to. We were just figuring if we're going to be doing a podcast anyways, we should do some Black History. We actually recorded our next episode uh, already, but it was laden with racism. So we decided, okay, that doesn't feel right to put that one in Black History Month. Let's let's Not take a our break. racism, other people's racism. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Other I, people's good, racism. Good, good to specify, but our, our next topic is a is a very outspoken racist, so uh, we decided maybe, maybe we push that one to March. Maybe if yeah. we just put that one in March, that'd be a better yeah, decision. There we go. So yeah, be on the lookout for that one, and if it sounds like, man, it sounds like they just recorded Howard Hughes after that episode, that's why. But anyway, yeah, so Cayman, do you just want to start with your topic? Let's just jump right into it. Uh, so today I am doing Josephine Baker. Now, if you've never heard of Josephine Baker, I'm about to explain who she is. So Good, hang around. I've never heard of her. <laughs> uh, I actually hadn't either, and I have to throw props to my sister on this one because she's the one that recommended that we do Josephine. So Frida Josephine McDonald was born June 3rd, 1906 to Carrie McDonald in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, there's a bit of mystery about her father, although evidence suggests that he was likely a white German who her mother was working for when she became pregnant. Hmm. Uh, regardless, Carrie McDonald... Sorry, what what year did you say she was born? 1906. Okay. So this okay. is kind of like a like a, a maid situation, a maid wealthy... Yeah, whenever I hear working for, I just want to... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. Uh Regardless, Carrie McDonald did eventually remarry, although the man she remarried, his name was Arthur Martin, uh, he did little to make ends meet. He was perpetually unemployed. Mm -hmm. So Carrie worked as a clothes washer to make ends meet. Washing machines weren't widely available until the 50s. Uh, so, you know, clothes washer used to be a pretty important job. Uh, and they actually had three more children. So this is a four children household, only the mother supporting the entire family. Now, because of this financial strain on the family, at age eight, Frida Josephine McDonald began working to support that family. Eight years old. That's nuts. 
Now, job prospects for a poor young black girl were not great in the early 1900s, so Josephine did the only job someone in her circumstances could get at the time, cleaning and babysitting for white families. Now, keep in mind, she's babysitting at eight years old. Yeah, I was old. about to say, like, how do you babysit at eight? Like, <laughs> it's like that uh, John Mulaney bit where it's like, oh, yeah, we have dogs watching horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, times have changed. Um so the families that Josephine would work for uh, frequently abused her for any mistakes she made, which, given her age, you got to think is a lot. Mm-hmm. Around age 12, she dropped out of school and just ran away. I can't really blame her for doing it. At age 13, Josephine, who was homeless and living out of garbage cans, finally started to make money by dancing on sidewalks. Now, this is just kind of like sidewalk entertainment, like you see in New York, that sort of thing. Right. Or Memphis. Or Memphis. Yeah, we do it in Memphis. Well, not we. Other people do it. I Damon watch it. it I say, wow, that's, that's, his, that's his primary form of employment. He does this on the <laughs> I side. I dance on the sidewalks. Uh, so it was here that she met Willie Wells, and the two would soon be married. When she was thirteen, hmm. once again, oh how my oh how times have changed. How, how old was Willie Wells? I think he was like eighteen. Eighteen. All right. 18. I had dug around. I couldn't find anything definitive, but around that age, still creepy, no matter what. You know what um, else is creepy? Anyone named Willie. Just don't trust ye- anyone named Willie. What is Willie short for? William, I would assume. Well, no, 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 no. I would trust Willie Nelson in a heartbeat. Oh, that's a good point. All right. Yep. Yeah. Point yep. taken. Point taken. So within a year, however, Josephine was divorced, uh, likely because she insisted on pursuing work as an entertainer. So 14, one divorce under your belt. Uh, two years later, at age okay, 15... Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. At age 14, she's what? Like, it's 1920, exactly? Yeah, 1920? yep. Divorce, was divorce, like, a big thing then? Like, especially for a 13-year-old? Like, I mean... Did she have to have parental consent to get married? I, don't, doubt, I it. doubt it. I doubt it. It's okay. I think the big thing, this is before, like, the, uh, like, resurgence of evangelicalism, even... Evangelism. Evangelism, evangelism in, yeah. in the U.S. So, um, I don't know. Maybe it was cooler then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? And it's cra- It's already, and I'll get into this whenever we get into my topic, there's so many overlaps between our topics already. And, like, I actually did some research about when divorce was legalized and then illegalized. Or, maybe, illegalized? Is that a word? Yeah, illegalized. Um, but that was all, like... <laughs> post-civil war stuff so so thinking back yes uh it would have been legal by this point um but anyway it's just it's crazy you know illegalize it well she (laughs) (laughs) she is 14 now and she's newly divorced uh but two years later age or no a year later at age 15 josephine was remarried yet again to a man by the name of willie baker oh another willie second willie uh, this marriage lasted a bit longer, four years, and afterwards, Josephine would decide to keep his name for the rest of her life. So mm-hmm. she's now Josephine Baker. Right. Uh, the same year that she married Baker, she also moved to New York. Now, at this time in New York, a little neighborhood in the borough of Manhattan was on the come up, inventing new music, art, entertainment, philosophy, and so much more. And Josephine Baker was right in the middle of it. It was the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance. In 1921, Josephine got a part as a chorus girl in the successful Broadway musical titled Shuffle Along. And she was immediately a star of the show, impressing the crowd as the quote-unquote last girl in the line, 
pretending to be clumsy and not knowing the dances until the very end, when she would spontaneously not only nail the dances, but build upon them in complex ways. In 1924, Josephine got a part as a chorus girl in another Broadway musical titled The Chocolate Dandies. She was so good at being a chorus girl that she was billed as the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville. Now, I should explain a few things here. One, chorus girl was like a background singer slash dancer in these musicals. And also, vaudeville was like a popular type of show in the early 1900s. Kind of like variety, it had comedy, sing, dance, that sort of stuff. Really, though, it was more of like a genre. Um, people, for instance, consider Houdini to be vaudeville, even though he only had like one shtick. Um, but it was just kind of like, it was an aesthetic, really. Mm-hmm. While Josephine was starting to hit it big in New York, she wanted more. She wanted the headline. Therefore, in 1925, at only 19 years old, Baker got on a boat for Paris to star in La Revue Negre at the Théâtre de Chop Elise. Killing it. You're killing this, it. She went to do Fran- France stuff in the France land. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> so she immediately became a European sensation for her erotic dancing and unique style. Okay. Uh, they, so they so it was Broadway dance. before. Uh, is it, you say erotic mm. dancing, is it a little more risque um, when she goes yeah, to France? Yeah, definitely. Okay. It's, it's some stuff that probably wouldn't be allowed here. Well, like, at the time, but like, yeah. I mean, it was probably like she shows her ankles on stage. No, 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 no. She was showing, she was showing a lot. Uh, she oh. actually got pretty famous for one dance that she did where she was just dressed in uh, bananas. Mm. So like with bananas covering her, her bits. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was, she was, uh, I mean, it's France, you know. Right. You don't wear clothes in France. The French, the French have no morals. <laughs> so within a year or so josephine became so popular that she was like the poster child for the new art form art deco and she was considered to be the most popular american entertainer in france period Hmm. so she's huge in france now to put it in the words of my favorite author ernest hemingway she was quote the most sensational woman anyone ever saw wow she was so famous that even Picasso was drawing paintings of her because he was so inspired by her beauty. But here's my thing. Does it matter where you're from if you're a dancer? Like, I mean, she's the most popular American. But, like, if you're just dancing, then, like... I mean, I, I think that is significant because she was... Well, as we'll come to find out, she also starts acting... Actually, I think it's the next thing that I say, but she okay. starts acting, she starts All singing... Right. So, uh, Josephine wasn't just on the stage. Uh, she had also began starring in movies and enjoying a very successful singing career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she sang in English and in French. So, obviously, she had learned French at some point. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty impressive. I mean, look, you, you spend she, years there. Yeah, that's fair. She's still young enough that, like, a language is pretty easy to learn. She also, <laughs> yeah, she also dropped out of school at age 12. Mm-hmm. And, like, was a was a street she's street smart street smart that's what it is so by 1935 she's really like become the talk of europe like Mm -hmm. she's big uh in 1936 she finally made her return to the u.s uh and now she's only 30 years old and she's one of the biggest stars in france so she comes back to the u.s and she gets a starring role in the 1936 broadway play Ziegfeld follies 
Unfortunately for Josephine, America, if anything, had grown more cruel after the end of its golden age. Ticket sales were not up to par, and critics tore her down by saying that she had only been talented because she was in Paris, and she was too thin and ugly. Uh, well, at the time, I mean, we're, we're in the Great Depression by this point, right? Like, the Roaring Twenties are over. Actually, we're kind of recovering. We start to recover from the Great Depression at this point in time. But yeah, things had gotten dark for yeah. a while. Um, so we're still kind of in that. In reality, going back on what the critics said, uh, there just wasn't a market on Broadway or in the U.S. for a black star. People didn't want it. So her part in the play was soon replaced by a white woman. In 1937, Josephine returned to France heartbroken and soon married again to a white French industrialist named Jean Lyon. She soon renounced her American citizenship and became French permanently. Why not? I mean... Yeah, so they just treated her like garbage, so she went back. Forget it. Which also, I think it's so crazy that she, like, goes back to France and marries a white man. Like, in the U.S., that would, that would not fly. Actually, I don't even think, like, the first interracial couple got married until like maybe the 50s are you sure about 40s? that i'm almost positive that's wrong let's mm, can we get a fact check colin first interracial marriage in america okay i will report back all right so now she's back in france she is now french and for the next few years things were great for her and honestly the entire country of france yeah and then september 1939 came I don't know how I didn't think through where this was going yep. until just now. <laughs> yep. So we're in France. I don't know how September. I get caught off guard every time. Like I should just immediately know that this is where everything heads. Everything goes to war. <laughs> exactly. World War II specifically. Right. See, on this specific month, September, in this specific year, 1939, France declared war on Nazi Germany in response to their invasion of Poland. Yeah. By June of the next year, by June, France had fallen to the Axis powers. Mm -hmm. So things did not go so hot for France in the Second World War. Right. So at this point in time, Josephine... Oh, wait, it seems like we have the fact check. Yeah, okay. So so there's two answers. Okay. Uh, the, the, the first real answer is the first interracial marriage uh, was Pocahontas... And tobacco oh. planter John Rolfe in 1614. But if you don't count that one, right? Uh, then the first legal black-white marriage in the United States was that of African American professor William G. Allen and a white student Mary King in 1853. When their plans to marry were announced, Allen narrowly escaped being lynched. Their marriage was secret, and they left the country immediately for England, never to wow. return. So okay, so, so once again, I'm really going to say that's date. a secret marriage. Yeah, really early. And I'm date. not going to count it. But, because it but, contradicts but what it they wasn't did, right? that was the like first it, for a while it was legal. explicitly illegal they made it legal and i guess this happened what state did that happen in the the banning of interracial marriage was not fully lifted into the last anti miscegenation law miss uh, anti miscegenation m i s c e g e n a t i o n Miscegenation were struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren, a unanimous ruling, Loving versus Virginia, which was on June 12, 1967. Wow. So, I mean, I knew when you said Warren, because uh, he did the Warren Commission, but like, dang, yeah. that is late so, in the game. But I mean, wow. but people were getting married before that. Right. That was federally. Like, here's where Andrew Kenny and Mahala Miller 
got married in 1874. Mm-hmm. So I don't. Regardless, know. what I'm regardless, trying to point regardless. out is that she wear she married a white man, yeah, and that was chill. Like everyone was cool with it, right? As France, France is US, more progressive than us. We yes. get it. Well, yeah. that's just that's really progressive, like really progressive at that time, not progressive now. But 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 what is my spot? Where was I at? So, Josephine, and this is picking up after France had fallen to the Axis powers, but Josephine then did the only rational thing an ex-American black actress living in a fascist-slash-racist occupied state oh, could do. Oh, I didn't even realize she renounced her American, like, citizenship yeah, before French. this happened. Oh, right. no. Yep. Oh, no. So, what's the only rational thing that she can do? I don't know. Become a spy for the French resistance. What? Yeah. That's <laughs> dope. Okay. Yeah. See, Josephine's career gave her a reason to travel, and her fame gave her an invite to all sorts of parties, including parties with high-ranking military men and leaders of German, the Italian, and Japanese descent. Hold on. But she's black, right? Right. So, But she's also gorgeous and very talented. But still, so they're just where like, does, where does where uh, do the Nazis draw the line? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I, All right, uh, we've already learned that they buy weapons from Jewish people. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've already covered that. But like, I feel like Jewish, you can like, you can pass as like not Jewish, right? Like, you have. But to- they knew. It's not like the Nazis didn't know he was Jewish. They knew he That's was true. Jewish. That's he just true. had guns. Yeah, he was. They were openly. <laughs> And yeah, that's a reference yeah, to one of our other episodes, the but, yeah, Nazis that's a bought weapons yeah. from that, Jewish people. Yeah, that's that's um, from uh, our last I'm really glad you did. But Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, on your question of where do Nazis draw the line, mm-hmm. it's kind of like whose line is it anyways, where like... The points <laughs> don't matter. It's yeah, like, it's like whatever's don't... convenient at the time. Right, exactly. Um, so, Josephine uh, would attend parties and turn on her charm uh-huh. to, you know... Nazis and the Japanese and the Italian right. and dig for information. So she, she would essentially flirt vital military information mm-hmm. out of these people. The next night, for instance, and this is just an example, she would leave for a concert in a different country and smuggle information about troop locations and military plans that she had memorized and then wrote on her sheet music in invisible ink. So wait a minute. It wasn't like, oh yeah, we're doing some war stuff. It was like, oh yeah, we have 300 men on the trenches of like Well, that's the thing. People were also like so unexpecting of her that she could like just go by military installations. Not like go in, but she could yeah. go by them and like say like, "Oh, I'm driving to this town or whatever." And like she was famous. Right. So everyone knew who she was. So people were like excited to see her, not that's like, nuts. "Oh, what's this person doing here?" Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, she did this all throughout the war, handed over a lot of very important information. Her efforts were so substantial to the war effort, in fact, that after the war was over, she received many military awards, including the Croix de Guerre, which is um, pretty famous. Uh, they gave it to uh, people for acts of heroism. France still gives it to people. And she also got the uh, Rosette de la Resistance for contributions to French resistant effort. And then she was made a member of the Legion of Honor, which is the highest order of merit in France. This is kind of like being knighted in Britain. Wow. And she was actually given this title by French general turned president Charles de Gaulle, Hmm. who is 
very important yeah. in history, at least modern history. So after the war, Josephine Baker's fame only grew. Uh, she also got divorced and married again. Surprise, surprise. This is her fourth marriage. Uh, in 1951, she was invited back to the U.S. to perform in a nightclub in Miami. Once she had arrived, she found out the club really was you go from being a like international spy back to playing nightclubs. I mean, she was playing nightclubs as an international spy. Like you think if James Bond retired, he'd stop drinking martinis? That's Gotta have fair. a day job. So once she found out that the club was segregated, she refused to perform at it, even though this is like her big reveal back into the U.S. Yeah, but I mean, why have a big reveal? Like, I'd, yeah. I'd be jaded too. Yeah. But see, this time when she came back to the U.S., uh, Josephine had become more than just talent and good looks. Mm -hmm. uh, she was also a damn war hero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, Josephine publicly took on the club and used public support to force them to desegregate before she would perform. Afterwards, her run at the club sold out. She followed by selling out all across the U.S. on a national tour, and this time the reviews loved her. At this time, Josephine was becoming more and more involved in civil rights, refusing to perform at any segregated clubs and desegregating a lot of clubs because they wanted Josephine more than they wanted to be segregated. Right. So after receiving death threats from the KKK, surprise, surprise, she publicly stated that she wasn't afraid of them. Apparently, the Ku Klux Klan failed to realize that while they were in the U.S., you know, groping their cousins, Josephine <laughs> Baker had been in the wolf's den among Nazis fighting for the resistance. So right, they're, she they're wasn't mad really... at her for fighting the Nazis. They're like, hey, <laughs> yeah. those were our boys. <laughs> yeah, so she was not to be messed with, and uh, she didn't she didn't take any of the threats. yeah exactly like if yeah. you if you weren't afraid of like spying on the Nazis, some yeah some <laughs> some yokels and and hoods are not going to scare you. Right. So, that same year, she was greeted by a parade of over 100,000 people upon her return to Harlem and, re was re and was rewarded the NCAACP's Woman of the Year Award. Essentially, Josephine had hardly been in the U.S. a year and was already a national sensation who was becoming an important symbol for justice in the United States. That was until an argument with a gossip journalist named Walter Winchell over civil rights caused him to write an article alleging her communist sympathies. Hmm. Oh, it's this card again. Yep. So this story, though unfounded, was all the excuse the U.S. needed to get a potentially problematic person to go away. Yep. Her work visa was soon suspended and she was forced to go back to France. Hmm. Now, Josephine wouldn't regain entry to the U.S. for another 10 years, but when she came back, she wasn't here for entertainment. She was here to educate America. Josephine went around the country, marching for civil rights and speaking to students at historically black universities. In 1963, she spoke alongside Martin Luther King Jr. at the historic March on Washington as the only female speaker, and did so while wearing her French military uniform and her Legion of Honor medal. Wow. They gave her a uniform? Yeah. Why? She was a part of the military. Yeah, I know, but, like, I feel like when you're a spy... Well, it, it was obviously, like, you know how, like, the Marines symbolic. have those blue pants? Right, it's Like, symbolic. you don't wear those into combat. It's, right. like, your formal... I get whatever. it, and I guess they gave it to her after she was done, because, like, anyway. Probably. Yeah, yeah it's probably... <laughs> Thank you for your service. You're, Here's the you're uniform You're going through you a Nazi wore. checkpoint, and they're like, what's this uh, French Resistance uniform you have here? <laughs> I had something I picked like... up. Thrift store. Yeah. <laughs> So, in her speech at the March on Washington, Josephine stated, 
I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and to the houses of presidents, and much more. But I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know I like to open my big mouth. And then look out, because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. She's pretty badass. Yeah. Uh, so after Martin Luther King's assassination, the newly widowed Coretta King asked Josephine if she would take her husband's place as leader of the civil rights movement. She eventually declined, stating that her children were, quote, too young to lose their mother. Mm. At this point, you should be thinking two things. The first of which is, wow. And like, yeah, I know. She's amazing. Um, the second is, wait, she had kids? You didn't say anything about her having kids, Cayman. Uh, well, yeah, she actually had 12 kids. Wow. And she adopted most of them. Okay. Uh, see, they were from all over the world. After all the fighting and hate she had seen in her life, she wanted to give something back for her success and also prove that children of every race, religion, and nationality could live under one roof in happiness. And it seems like for the most part they did. Obviously, they had some normal family troubles. Uh, some of the kids thought that she was the greatest thing on earth, and some of them were like, oh, well, yeah, she was an okay mother. Um, but also, this whole thing kind of makes me wonder if, like, she inspired Angelina Jolie. I never yeah. looked it up. <laughs> what? But, like, that's no, kind of... No, I mean, that's... I know, but, like... Well, that's... I don't know. Angelina Jolie did the same thing i don't yeah, know if but it was i don't think it's that in insane of an idea like oh i'll just go adopt a bunch of kids from different places like yeah maybe not regardless i feel like great things to do why not yeah adopt children uh so josephine continued her successes through the 60s and 70s in 1975 she started a production titled josephine ababino which was financed by prince rainier iii of morocco Princess Grace Kelly of Morocco, who was close friends with Josephine Baker, mm -hmm. and Jacqueline Kennedy. Oh. Yeah, former wife of President Kennedy. Yeah. Now, the production was a celebration of Josephine's 50 years in show business and her remarkable impact that she had on the world. The show was a fantastic success. Four days later, Josephine Baker slipped away peacefully in her sleep. She wow. was found surrounded by papers filled with glowing reviews of her show and her life. She was 68 years old. At her funeral, a huge perfect... How did she her, die? Uh, cerebral hemorrhage. Wow. Yep. So what? at her funeral... Why what? That's pretty common. I know, Well, but my thing is, like, that's such a storybook ending... Like it, like I thought for sure you would be like, oh yeah, she she, she like killed herself or something. No, like, she had a storybook life, man. That's nuts. She's Good amazing. For her. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, at her funeral, a huge procession came to pay the respects, and she was buried at Saint Charles Church in Monte Carlo with full French military honors. Yeah, of course. To this day, she is still the only American-born woman to receive this honor. Hmm. Obviously, there's been American-born men to receive that honor, uh, but not a woman. Yeah. And that is Josephine Baker, who, honestly, I am amazed that I'd never heard of. That is, yeah, seriously, point. like, I don't know how that's not, like, What taught. a badass. And, and when like, talking about World War II, like, that's just dope. Like, yeah. Like, even, even if you just took that little slice of the story, like... Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. And there was other stuff, too. Like, apparently, she would, like 
slip like secret messages and stuff like in her like bra and underwear and stuff mm-hmm. because she knew that she was so famous that if anyone like tried to like search her she'd be yeah. like oh you just want to grow up a famous person and then exactly. they get uncomfortable and like <laughs> so uh yeah no amazing life what a badass i would recommend going and listening to some of her music because i've been listening to her music and like a lot of its covers and stuff she has some original songs uh, a lot of them are in french um she's obviously very talented like also i'm still yeah. baffled that a black woman was able to spy on the nazis like yeah like that's awesome to me <laughs> <laughs> i don't know hey, I just, man. if i just wouldn't imagine that that would even be possible so yeah no that yeah. that was that was great yeah um all right cool now um, what are you doing i'm doing a man named robert smalls Smalls was born into enslavement in 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, His mother, Lydia, was a house slave, and as such, her son was uh, treated better uh, than the children born to, like, field slaves, right? So her son was a house slave. Her son, yeah, basically. Like, if you were were a house slave, your kids were kind of treated, like, because they were treated better, and so your kids kind of got that treatment also. Um Probably and, still treated like shit, but better. Yeah, it's it's all relative, right? It's still not <laughs> right. good, but it's better. And so it wasn't even that they were treated better, like in a relationship wise, like obviously you were still treated as property, but the fact that you didn't have to work in the field and you didn't witness uh, like lashings and stuff like that, like you were kind of insulated from kind of the horrible reality of slavery. Uh, his mother, Lydia, hated this, um, that, that her son was not seeing these things. And so she, so she was a house slave. She was a field worker. No, his mother was a was a house worker. OK. And she didn't like that her son wasn't seeing those things. She was like, okay. my, my son doesn't know what's really going on. Um, so she specifically requested for her son, Robert, to be put into the field. She's like, he's going to work in the field. He's going to, she would specifically take him to lashings. If she found out one was going on, she's like, you're going to watch this. Mm. Um, you're going to know, you're going to know what's going on. Um, which like, Thanks, mom. well, I yeah, mean, I get it. I get it it. it. it, it kind of sets him on the path that he goes on in his life. But, and at the same time, so that's his mother. And as far as his father goes, nobody really knew who it was. Right. It's theorized that it was either, uh, they were owned by the McKee family. Uh, so it was either, uh, John McKee, who was kind of the patriarch of the family, uh, his son, Henry McKee, or the plantation manager, Patrick Smalls. And so Robert Smalls has took the last name of Smalls. So the plantation manager's last name being Smalls, maybe that's leaning towards who it was. Regardless, Robert Smalls was probably half white, which is going to come up later in the story. Same as Josephine. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, um, and that's that's one of the parallels, right? You were like, uh, who, right. who knows who? Yeah. So anyway, um, and and the fact that his father was most likely someone in power may have also been why he was being given special treatment, right? So when Robert was twelve, beyond this, like he's already been like, you know, like I said, witnessing lashings, working in the field. Lydia requests that her son be sent to Charleston for work. And this is something that I didn't know was a thing, but enslaved people could be sent to other locations for work and their wages would be sent back to their masters. Like, there was a whole, like, 
exchange program. I don't. Uh, that might be a gross oversimplification, but yeah, but um, yeah, that's what it seems like it is. I- anyway, yeah, I, which I again. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm really awkward talking about this. Slavery's bad. And we're gonna. Slavery's feel bad. About it. I feel like I'm tiptoeing in a minefield. <laughs> it's bad. Um, upon yeah. arriving in Charleston, Robert began working at the harbor and uh, started to work his way up to being a wheelman, which is someone who drives a ship. Um, now, if a white person were to do this job, they would be called a pilot, um, but he was a wheelman. Oh, okay. Yeah, and there's no difference between those two jobs. It's just <laughs> the color of your skin determines your title. Okay. And so this is what fiction has kind of, like, ruined in my brain, is that, like, I think the captain always steers the ship, which is not really the case. The captain will make calls, and then the pilot or the wheelman will steer the ship. So those are two separate positions. So I want to I want to put that up front. Uh, the captain is not the one steering the ship. Are, are you sure it's a pilot and not a helmsman? It's a pilot. Okay. The, I mean the the name may have changed over time. I know we use helmsman now, but yeah. Okay. So now let's fast forward to uh, 1861. Uh, Smalls is now 22 years old, and he has since gotten married um, and has three children. Smalls has negotiated to get $1 per week out of his wages before the rest is sent back, back to the McKees. And his goal is to buy his family's freedom. And the price that he got is $800. Uh, and after working for 10 years in Charleston, Robert Smalls has been able to save up $100. So he's looking at 80 years before he can achieve his goal. So that's not really an option, right? No. Like, he's never going to be free this way. So he began thinking of other ways that he could get his family's freedom. So in 1861, the Civil War begins, and Smalls is assigned to the CSS planter. CSS being the... Colin, help me out. What's USS? Uh, United States ship. Yep. So this is a Confederate States ship. So, So... Smalls is on the planter now, um, and it was being used for transport of Confederate supplies and troops along the coast, as well as laying mines in the areas surrounding southern ports. So one night, the planter docked a few miles outside of Charleston. And so let me give you an idea. So there were obviously Confederates on the ship, but for the most part, their crew was still enslaved black people, right? Right. So this night that they that they docked, three officers decided to go into town, trusting that Smalls would take care of the ship. So there were always supposed to be three white Confederate officers on the ship. They all leave. They're like, we're going to go into town. We're going to have a good time. You guys don't do anything crazy. (laughs) I feel like they're going to do something crazy. Not only that, but then (laughs) then the crew says, hey, um, do you mind if we invite our families onto the ship? We haven't seen them in a while. And this was something that they did pretty regularly with supervision, right? Right. Um, and so they were like, yeah, whatever, bring your family on the ship. Like, we're going to go have a good time at the bar. Um, you guys just do whatever you want with the ship. And that was, that was a common thing back in like the times of slavery is that they would always do like, you know, things to keep the slaves happy. Well, and that's the other thing though, is like, and something I hadn't really realized, like he worked at the docks, his wife worked for like a hotel. So Mm -hmm. like. The only way they were going to see each other was these, like, kind of retreats, whatever you want to call them. So, anyway, they ask, and they get, yeah, yeah they're like, yeah, bring your families on, whatever. Not, I, I don't know what they were thinking. Because, obviously, the obvious happens, and they take the ship. 
Right. Um, I'm trying to think about it from the point of view of the Confederates. We're going to leave. Y'all get your families. Here's the ship. Uh, Here's the keys. Don't go freeing yourselves now. So I should point out now that the Union forces had set up a blockade north of Charleston, which is pretty much where they're at. Um, And the rumor was that if an enslaved person could surrender themselves to the Union, that they would be taken north and given their freedom. Uh, Now, keep in mind, I said rumor. Uh, This could not be true. Nobody really knows. Like, this has just kind of traveled through the grapevine. Um, And as such, uh, the families of the crew of the planter agreed that if their plan were to fail, they would set off dynamite in the boiler room of the ship and end all of their lives. Like, that's the stakes that we're at. Because think about it. If they get caught, the fate is much worse than death, right? Bro, where is this movie? Seriously, no, it That's should be a movie. so metal. This is like the start, dude. Like, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> okay. So anyway, they're like, yeah, you know, if, if something goes wrong, dynamite to the boiler room. We're all done. Um, this either works. It's freedom or death. It is legitimately freedom or death. Yeah. So Smalls disguised himself as the ship's captain. And like, he had always been like teased about looking like the captain. Again, going back to the fact that he may have been half white. But he had, like, I don't want to say, like, he studied the captain, but everybody, like, knew the way that the captain, like, walked and stood. Like, he was a very uh, unique person in that respect. So, like, Smalls gets into character, right? He puts on the uniform, he puts on the hat, and he, like, stands in the exact way at the exact spot on the ship. um, Because they're going to have to pass by, like, Confederate bases, they're going to have to pass by Confederate ships, and there's, like, signals and if anything looks off, they're going to they're going to say the signal of like you need to come in for an inspection. And that's the day that improv was born. Exactly. Yes, he is <laughs> he is yes ending his way to freedom. So, and also this is this is like in the early early morning. We're talking like 3:4 a.m. So it's still right. like fairly dark. Um so so they could pass by and it's not crazy that, you know, there's a black crew uh you know with a white captain, you know, Obviously, Robert Smalls isn't white, but he's passing off as the captain. So it's not crazy to see this. So as long as they can keep their cool, they're going to be able to get past everything. And honestly, I'm going to say you're you're on that graveyard shift as someone who's worked the graveyard shift myself. You know, a lot of times it's like, that's not my problem. Mm-hmm. So like there's there's I'm not saying he was bad at acting. <laughs> But even if anyone did notice, they might have been like, well, exactly. Yeah, it's like I'm uh, rubbing the sleep. I'm not, out of I'm my not dealing eyes. with this right now. This, <laughs> yeah, this can right. be day shifts problem. <laughs> right. But anyway, so so they pass by ship after ship, fort after fort, doing the signals. They get the signal back like you're good to go. You're good to go. Their last obstacle is Fort Sumter, which. Ooh, is, I've been there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And again, this is a major fort. Like this is this is like this is the final boss, right? Like if we can get past Fort Sumter, we're we're home free. But like literally everyone is like I mean, you can feel the tension in the air, right? Like this is it. Like right. either this works or this doesn't. Like this is it. And many of the crewmen, because of this, they're like, we just need to give it a wide berth. Like, let's just let's just steer out so that if they do decide to fire on us, like they can't hit us. And right. and they're all talking about it, and Robert Smell says no. If you do that, you're going to set off the red flags. He's like, we go exactly the way we would if we were just going by like normal. He's like, do not veer us off anywhere. 
Um, and they just sail past. They, they give the signal, get the signal back, and coast right on past Fort Sumter. And it's not – because obviously they're going north. Like they're going yeah. past – like towards the <laughs> Union blockade. So it's not until they're already outside of gun range that everyone at Fort Sumter goes, that's not, that's not right. Um, that's but they're not right. outside of gun range, so it doesn't matter. They're, they're, they're home free. They're done. Um, so they make it past. They're good. They're, but now, okay, they've made it past all the Confederate forces. Now they are a Confederate ship barreling towards a Union blockade, right? So, <laughs> in it's order, not funny, but it's it's it, almost comical. It like, is. I mean, like it's it's um because I just imagine the Confederate spotter Fort Sumner being like, "Hey, Charlie, is that a?" black man yeah it literally it feels like uh blazing saddles like a mel brooks bit like yeah, you could easily have made and made that into like a a scene from that movie right um but anyway so so they again they're sailing towards the, the union uh blockade as a confederate ship so luckily um smalls's wife had had thought ahead and brought a white sheet from the hotel that she worked at so they pulled down the Confederate flag really quick, now that they're past Fort Sumter, and they put up a white sheet. And so the Union sees white sheet and they're like, What we're not even in battle. Why would you why would you why would you come out to surrender? <laughs> and, and like they even consider like, do we do we even what what's like there's no way this is right. But they right. were like, No, let's let's see what's going on before we just fire on them. And luckily, um, you know, they, they go out and Robert Smalls has a great line here. He he meets the Union captain and says, quote, Good morning, sir. I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. Because, you know, they had a ton of supplies on the ship also. Uh, right. End quote, obviously. Um, but, yeah, and then he, he specifically, he's like, Hey, by the way, um, could I get an American flag to replace that sheet up there? Um, which, nice. like, is just solid. Like, I just think that's a solid <laughs> scene. Like, again, where's the movie? That's a patriot. That's a patriot who shouldn't be a patriot, and he still is. And that's, it's kind of, it's cool. It's cool. So, like I said, the uh, the planter's job was to plant mines. So, he tells him everything that he knows about. He's like, hey, here's where all the mines are. Like, you guys want to go attack? <laughs> like, you, here's how you sail around all of them. Um, and here's where I've been taking, like, forces. Like, he, he's got all this information. Not only the stuff that he's done personally, but he's always around the Confederates who are talking about the other stuff that they're doing. Plus, you um, gotta think, this is on their ship. They have to have, like, some sort of documentation for stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure so, there's papers and, and everything else. Yeah. And a ship, right? He also delivers them a ship. He's like, hey, here's a ship. You guys can have this. And his intel actually leads to the reclamation of Coles Island, which was like a, a big fortification spot outside of uh, South Carolina. Union forces take it by the end of the week, like based on his intel. And I mean, that's huge. A lot of the war, a lot of the significant parts of the Civil War were fought in the Carolinas. Yeah. So like that's big. The coastline of the Carolinas was a hot spot. Yeah. So news of Robert Small's escape immediately makes headline news, uh, both for the Union and the Confederacy, right? Like, obviously the Union's like, hey, look look at how awesome this was, uh, while, while the Confederacy's like, look how bad this was, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But the Confederacy issues a $4,000 bounty on Robert Smalls' head, uh, which $4,000 in Civil War money is insane. Is a lot again, of money. Again, remember, a family was worth $800. Yeah, uh... <laughs> 
I gotta feel like one that puts the fear in you, but two, like you kind of gotta be proud of like absolutely having that high of a bounty. Absolutely. Uh, oh, and also the Confederacy promptly court martials the three Confederate soldiers who let this happen. Right. Um, that that oh, kind of that part makes sense. That. And and people were pissed. Like they were like, we need to hang those guys. Like I can't believe that they let this happen. Like all this stuff. Nothing ever happens to those guys, but like that those guys were like panned. Um, by the yeah. Confederacy. But anyway. Uh, meanwhile, Congress awarded Smalls and his crew half of the ship's value as payment for, for their mission. Oh, shit. Which sounds nice, right? You're like, oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds dope. That's so cool. Um, don't give Congress too much credit, though. Uh, because this is a nice gesture, but almost everyone at the time could tell you that they grossly undervalued the ship. Like, mm. gross, like, we're talking, like, maybe 10% of what it was actually worth. Um, mm. And later on, Congress also tries to forego giving Robert Smalls a military pension, and that's a whole thing. The point is, don't applaud Congress. They do this, it's a nice gesture, but, like, they... Again, it's still... It's still Congress. It's still Congress in the in the late 1800s, like... Don't say in the late 1800s, like, they're better now. That's fair, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, you, you yeah. know what I mean. But anyway, so President Lincoln invites Robert Smalls to meet him at the White House uh, and have, like, lunch, maybe dinner? I don't know. Anyway, President Lincoln invites Robert Smalls to Either meet him way, at the White nice. House. Either way, whichever one. Damn it. <laughs> I, I, was, I was just going to re-record this part. Dinner's um, more significant for sure, but lunch is nice. <laughs> it's more intimate. It's typically lighter, yeah. Um, so during the meeting, Smalls advocates for the president to allow black men to enlist in the Union Army. And up to this point, many, many members of Congress and, and the government were outspokenly against this idea, as was President Lincoln. Oh, I've seen Glory. I know. Matthew Broderick. Yeah. I haven't seen it, so I don't know what you're oh, talking well, about. But I take your good. word for it. Uh, and also, okay. top top military officials were completely against the idea. Um, some of it for, yeah. like, racist reasons, obviously. But but also the idea that, like, you know, a white prisoner of war in the South is going to be treated much differently than a black prisoner of war. Right. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it was all racist, but it was mostly racist. There were pros and cons on both sides, right. Yeah. But anyway, Smalls' detailed knowledge of the Confederate naval strategy, as well as his skills as a naval pilot, made him a valuable resource. So they were like, yeah, you know, we don't really want black men to enlist in the army, but you specifically are pretty cool and we want you. So as such, Smalls served in the Navy as a civilian up until the Emancipation Proclamation, which allowed black men to serve in the army officially. So at that point, he became an official um, army resource, but e even still, he was serving as a civilian uh, because right. he wanted to he wanted to do this like he was advocating to Lincoln like, hey. This is a cause that we believe in. Like, you've got to let us do this. And even still, Lincoln was like, eh, I don't really know. Until the Emancipation Proclamation, then it became official. But Smalls didn't right. let that stop him, which I think is awesome. But um, that's, yeah, I mean, it's badass. Like, yeah. the Civil War was bad. And the fact that anyone was like, I want to go. I want to go right now. Exactly. Please let me go. Let me and, go And fight. it's not like Smalls didn't know the consequences, right? Like, I mean, he, he knew the consequences when he piloted the, or I guess, captain the uh, the planner, right? Like, he was like, look, I was ready to dynamite the boiler room. Like, I know what I'm getting into. So anyway, during his military service, Smalls fought in 17 battles. And during one of these battles, his captain 
basically they knew that they were in big trouble, right? And his captain's like, I'm getting out of here. Like, we've 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 just got a abandoned ship. But Robert Smalls knew that what would happen to the captain would not be the same like I said, you know, black prisoners right. of war versus white prisoners of war. He's it like, would be worse yeah, for them. Yeah, you could you can just leave the ship. He's like, and if you get caught, you know, you're a prisoner of war, whereas we're probably tortured to death. So no, I'm not going. And so the captain leaves and Robert Smalls is like, okay, I'm in charge now. Like I'm captaining us out of here. Like we can't we can't <laughs> surrender ourselves. I um, like how the entire time he's like, I'm I'm gonna fight and or I'm gonna suicide. I'm gonna do something. Exactly. That's but, the thing. Um, is like he's like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna roll over. Like that's yeah. not gonna that's not the solution here. Like that is right. the worst worst case scenario. Freedom or death. As uh, just yeah. this phrase I like to keep coming back to. Freedom or death. Um, so anyway, he, he captains the ship and he's like, Hey, you know, this is how we're going to get out of here. And he cap he successfully gets them to safety. Like they, they get out of the situation. They don't, obviously they don't turn the tides of the battle, but they get out of there with the ship and with the crew intact. Um, right. And after this, um, Smalls becomes the first black man to be promoted to captain in, in the Navy. And even better is he gets to be captain of the planter. Like, cause the planter was taken in as a USS ship by that point. So they're like, okay, you can captain the ship that you brought to us. So he's now the captain of the planner in the civil war fighting in battles. Really, really cool. Is um, it still a ship that lays mines or if they, uh, I mean, purpose? it's a transport ship. Uh, I'm sure I, I don't really know what it does. Um, as, as a union ship, I'd say probably the same things, transporting troops, um, you know, laying mines probably, but like I said, he fought in 17 battles. So it's not like yeah. this thing is like, I mean, it's still got to fight if the, if the fight comes to it. So, right. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say it's not, it's not a warship. Like you're not going out looking for a fight, but sometimes the fight comes to you. So, right. So anyway, with the war ending, Smalls decides to return to his home in Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, the union wins spoilers. I don't know if I mentioned that, but, um, the union wins the civil war. Right. Um, and he goes back to South Carolina, um, you know, thinking like, ah, everything's good. Like, we're, we're going to go back to South Carolina. I'm a free man now. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, I, mm. I, again, I feel like I'm he probably knew that that wasn't the case, but he, he's he's like, this is my home. Right. Like, we're going to rebuild. We're going to make this right. We're going to build a better future. Um, and when he gets there, he finds that his former master's home has been seized by Union tax authorities. This is another thing I didn't know. After the war was over, the IRS came knocking and they were like, hey, the past five years <laughs> that you guys have been like doing your whole Confederacy thing, uh, you haven't been paying taxes. <laughs> so uh, we're going to need those taxes. Yeah, taxes come for us all in the end. Exactly. What's um, the saying? Like only two things are guaranteed. Death and, death taxes. and taxes. You have to yeah. pay taxes when you're not a part of the United States. They were still part of the United States. They uh, might the not US, have thought they were. The U.S. They never acknowledged them as not part of the United States. They seceded from the Union. Yeah, they the did. U.S. They, never they recognized that. that. Okay. The Union didn't recognize that. All right. They said, nah. No. I didn't sign my driver's license. I'm a sovereign <laughs> citizen. <laughs> oh. So anyway, um... So anyway, so so his former master's home has been seized by Union tax authorities. Um, and again, he's coming to, like, again, I don't want to say a small fortune because, like, again, he was owed so much more. But he had his military wages. Uh, he had the bonus that he got for bringing the planner. He had money, right? He was definitely doing much better than most black people at the time. Exactly. So when he goes right. back and sees his master's house up for sale, or his former master, uh, he says, I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. 
And so, which is amazing in and of itself, uh, but even more humbling, which again, I am not this big of a person. His former masters were obviously penniless and they had nowhere to go. And the former lady of the house was getting older. She was, she'd started to lose her mind. And honestly, she couldn't get the concept that that wasn't her house anymore. So he allowed her to stay in the house, not only in the house, but in the master bedroom until she died. He just let her live there. Wow. That is big of him. Which is huge. Like I, like I said, I'm not that big of a person. I am no, very, yeah. I'm very petty. And that's not pettiness. Like to say no <laughs> is not being petty. Like that is being a human being. And he is higher than that. He is a stellar human being. So with that, Smalls proceeded to found the South Carolina Republican Party uh, and ran and won a seat in the state Congress. And, and again, he did this because, you know, Republican Party was what Lincoln was a part of, and he saw Lincoln as a huge inspiration. So, while in office, Smalls helped author the 1868 South Carolina State Constitution, which, among many other things, granted public education to every child in the state, making it the first southern state to have fully free public education for every child. Now, this is the part in the story where I, we talked about interracial marriage earlier. It also legalized interracial marriage. So I was like, hey... I know for a huh. fact in 1868 it was legal That's in nice. South Carolina at least, which I mean is a big is big. South Carolina yeah. is like one that you wouldn't expect. So Smalls was later elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, um, but his influence there was never enough to make substantial change, uh, and that was pretty much manufactured by Southern whites. Um, right. Once they reclaimed the state Congress again, so Smalls moves up to the United States House of Representatives. State Congress basically gets taken back over by. South Carolinans. South Carolinians. Yeah. Democrats, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Dixiecrats. Um, yeah. Not quite, but yeah. I don't, I don't know what Dixiecrats means. I just know that it's racist. Essentially, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have switched. changed There's a whole thing. A lot. There's a whole thing yeah. we're going to have to cover at some point. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. There was a whole thing. But whenever they got back into power, they basically ripped up the 1868 Constitution and made their own. Uh, and this one restricted the voting rights of the black community. Uh, it required ownership of property in order to vote uh, of at least $20, which isn't a huge amount, but it's more than most had. And you also had to take a test in order to show that you were intelligent enough to be able to vote. Uh, and obviously this test was made so that black people wouldn't be able to pass it. Uh, after that, like it completely decimates the political power of Robert Smalls among many of the other in the black community. And he, he, Robert Smalls ends up losing re-election to the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, Smalls spent the remainder of his life as collector of the Port of Buford. Like, basically, whenever ships would come in, he would do routine checks, and, he, you know, he got a government salary and whatever. Um, right. This was mostly because this is one of the few positions that was appointed rather than elected. Uh, and President Benjamin Harrison basically did this just to piss everybody off in South Carolina. He was like, oh, you guys want to push out my boy Robert Smalls? Well, guess what? I'm appointing him to a position that you guys can't touch. Right. And it is important it is important to point out, from the entire time of the Civil War, the federal government was pretty much completely Republican-run, up until Woodrow Wilson. That was also Teddy Roosevelt's fault, but important to point out. So, yeah. So the federal government is probably still way more sympathetic towards Robert Smalls. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Robert Smalls, like, I mean, he was friends with 
basically all of those people. Like they, he had lunch with Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. Like he was a known commodity, and like the fact that he couldn't win election in South Carolina was manufactured almost entirely. Like he he had the support of the entire black community in South Carolina, and yet he still couldn't win election because of all the restrictions they put in place. And, well, thank and, God we got rid of voter suppression. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm <laughs> glad that doesn't happen today. But anyway, um, Smalls died in 1915 at the age of 75 due to malaria, and that basically ends his story. But 75 yeah. due to malaria? Yeah. Oh, well, that's... I mean, 75 is old. old. Yeah. But, yeah, I thought it was a cool story. He, um... yeah. Kind of the same thing. He wasn't quite a spy. He kind of had one spy mission, um, but it was a very important spy mission. And then he was a cool naval captain and uh, did a lot of cool well, stuff. I'm happy we got to do Black History Month. We we fun. covered two badasses. And of course, we didn't cover black people just for Black History Month, but I feel like it's two people that it might have taken us a while to get around to. And it's two people so. I, I... Okay, so I remember, I remember something about a slave stealing a ship. That's right. all I remember. I, I think I did learn about Robert Smalls in school. And so yeah. when, we, when we talked about doing this topic, that was the first thing that came to my head. But I didn't, like, because that's just a small, again, like we talked about, a small sliver of that story that's awesome, but, like, there's so much more beyond that. And so, um, yeah, it was it was great to learn more about these things. So yeah, um, definitely. We need to, and that's I, what Black History Month is for, Michael. There we go. Because we our education it. system does not emphasize it. <laughs> right so i guess if you are listening to the podcast now and you want some more uh we did it ourselves we you know beg you to do it as well go out learn some black history read black boy by uh richard wright one of my favorite books uh it's really a fascinating topic and this is what the month is about turn on pbs i'm sure they're doing something great right right this second unless you're listening to this outside of february then it's probably back to sesame street yeah, I was about to say, it's a 50-50 chance you're probably going to see Black History or Sesame Street. So No hate on Sesame Street, but... No, Sesame Street's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Cayman, you want to tell the people where they can find us? Yeah, of course. Well, you know, you can find us on Twitter at Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram at I really wish you had. Go give us a follow there, because sometimes we actually post things. So be sure to go follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms leave us a review anything like that everyone works a little differently some of them you can give us like us on your instagram story that's been the best post. way to get the podcast out there yeah post us on your instagram story we'll love it i'll even you know do a little uh share to our story when you share to your story so it's like we're all sharing each other's stories it'll be great that's how uh, social media works that, i don't i'm i'm not sure i've ever done a, a story on instagram i don't know how uh, any of that uh, works. i don't know i haven't either but i some people send them to me sometimes and i'm like hey look there we are there okay, we are cool. well the 21st century sure is exciting well thanks for joining us again we will see you guys of course in two weeks and we look forward to our topic then so go ahead and play us out, Colin. Okay. I really wish you hadn't is hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Kevin McMahon. We are produced by Colin Moore. Intro and outro music by Attack Story. And until next time, don't do a podcast for a full year. It's been exhausting. And as always, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I really wanna be there.